We braid sweetgrass for the same reason that we braid one another's hair. A chance to say, I care for your beauty. I want to participate and support your well-being. And and so that's emblematically what we're saying to Mother Earth when we braid her hair. Hello and welcome to The Right Question, a radio program and podcast featuring authors from the American West and beyond. The Right Question is supported in part by Humanities Montana and members of Montana Public Radio, and by the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. I'm Lauren Korn, speaking today with Robin Wall Kimmerer, author of Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teachings of Plants, a book that, in its 10 years of publication, has become a bestseller and seminal text for environmentalists, philosophers, naturalists, artists, and curious readers alike. As its subtitle suggests, Braiding Sweetgrass is a book that weaves traditional ecological knowledge, the language of Western science, and the subtle somatic language of plants to ground readers in an ethic of reciprocity between the human and more than human worlds. Robin Wall Kimmerer is a mother, scientist, decorated professor, and enrolled member of the Citizen Potawatomi Nation. She is the author of Braiding Sweetgrass and Gathering Moss, a natural and cultural history of mosses, which was awarded the John Burroughs Medal for Outstanding Nature Writing. She is a SUNY Distinguished Teaching Professor of Environmental Biology and the founder and director of the Center for Native Peoples and the Environment. She lives on an old farm in upstate New York, tending gardens both cultivated and wild. Robin will be in Missoula, Montana on October 10th for the President's Lecture Series, taking place in the University Ballroom on the University of Montana campus and over Zoom. Robin, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to The Right Question. Glad to be with you, Lauren. Robin, your author bio begins, Robin Wall Kimmerer is a mother, scientist, decorated professor, and enrolled member of the Citizen Potawatomi Nation. I'm wondering if you might speak a bit about who you are and who you come from, why you foreground motherhood in your bio and also in your book, and who are the Potawatomi people? Yeah, you know, I'm really mindful of of putting first those elements of who I am that seem most important to me. You know, we we get so wrapped up in in titles and where we work, but I really want to ground it in, you know, who I am and the connections that we make with with other people. And to me, motherhood well, it's universal. We all have mothers. <laughs> and and so that is a beginning place for relationship making. I think it has something to say about the value of a relationship, the value of 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 nurture and mutual responsibility that are grounded in motherhood. And that's why I I I, I start that way. To the second part of your question, the Potawatomi people are our original homelands are the southern Great Lakes from around South Bend, Indiana, over to Green Bay, Wisconsin, um, are our original homelands. But because of the violent history of removal and relocation, 
our people are now scattered on reserves from my own citizen Potawatomi Nation in Shawnee, Oklahoma, um, to Potawatomi living in Ontario. And so um, we are many political entities, but at heart, one nation of Potawatomi folks who, and I should say that Potawatomi folks are um, members of the Three Fires Confederacy, which is a um, confederacy with Ojibwe and Odawa relatives as well. So we are collectively part of the Anishinaabe nations. I'm going to go back to motherhood because there's a refrain that you write over and over again in Braiding Sweetgrass, and that's wanting to be a good mother or feeling like a good mother. And I'm wondering where your definition of good mother comes from and how that definition is situated within the philosophy or ethic of reciprocity that you draw out in your book. Mm. I really try to center that idea of being a good mother in a kind of universality of of nurture and raising I was going to say raising the next generation, but really raising good future ancestors um, in um, the model of Mother Earth as our first mother. You know, someone who provides for us our very lives, everything that we need to survive, but very importantly also provides us with lessons about how to live um, some of those are hard lessons. Some of them are 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 more generous. Um, but what what the model of of Mother Earth as a good mother is a model of reciprocal relationships that we not only have to be nurtured to give our gifts to the earth and to one another, but also to meet our responsibilities to one another. So it's that that duality that to me. Um, uh, underlies the notion of, of a good mother. And I want to step back or maybe forward in the conversation, but for the sake of our listeners who haven't yet read Braiding Sweetgrass, why did you choose sweetgrass as the plant around which you wind or braid your ways of knowing? What makes sweetgrass the best literal and metaphorical being to point to? Oh, what a wonderful question, Lauren. Um, sweetgrass, who in our language we call wingushk, is a sacred plant. Um, it's a sacred plant that is known for its bringing of kindness and generosity and, and goodness um, around us. Um, it helps us call those things into our minds and in our actions. It's a healing plant. It's a medicine plant for ills both physical and, and spiritual and emotional. And so the idea of this sacred medicine plant um, is really important to me because ecologically, sweetgrass or wingosh, uh, Linnaeus called it Hierochloe odorata, which means the sacred, fragrant, holy grass. Um, so one of those wonderful times when the scientific nomenclature um, is just spot on. <laughs> and um, it's a plant which is, uh, ecologically speaking, a pioneer species. With its uh, tangle of rhizomes, it's a really good earth healer. It binds the earth together after disturbance. And so 
metaphorically and pragmatically, it is a healing plant. And that's one of the reasons that I, I, I cherish that plant. And in our creation stories, um, sweetgrass is understood as the hair of Mother Earth. It's one of the first plants to grow on Earth, as ecologically it is, one of these first pioneer species. And so we braid sweetgrass for the same reason that we braid one another's hair, of a, a, a chance to say, I care for your beauty. I want to participate and support your well-being. And, and so that's emblematically what we're saying to Mother Earth when we braid her hair, when we braid sweet grass. So for me, there was no more potent metaphor than, than how do we take care of Mother Earth through our relationship with plants. I love that line, I care for your beauty. Um, Robin, when you decided to study botany as an undergraduate in academia, you were asked by a university advisor why you wanted to study it. And you told him that you wanted to learn why asters and goldenrod look so beautiful together. And you were rebuffed, uh, scolded almost, for believing that beauty had anything to do with science and botany. I'm wondering, if a student were to come to you with that answer now, I'm wondering how you would respond to them. And further, how do you see the role of beauty in a culture or in a world that prioritizes reciprocal relationships? Oh, what a joy that would be if a student came to me with exactly that question. <laughs> and you know, they do each in their in their own ways. And one of the things, there's a couple of things in your in your question. Let me start with the notion of beauty and what we mean by that. Because sometimes we think of it as 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 solely this aesthetic around color and composition, right? The the appearance. But to me, the beauty goes much deeper than that into the evolved relationships between those beings that have everything to do with soil and pollinators and 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 working well with the the beautiful september weather and rain and and so the beauty is in the making the beauty is in the process of creating that that relationship and as an ecologist that's the kind of beauty that I um, want to investigate as well as the stunning visuals that those plants provide for us. And so the second part of your question, to me, the beauty of the world, both functional and aesthetic, um, is a huge element in our biophilia, that wonderful term that E.O. Wilson gave us of, of our innate tendency to love the living world. Beauty is a, it is a doorway into biophilia. And so the, what we perceive as experience as the beauty of the world actually invites us into caring for that world, when we come to appreciate the intricacies with which the world is put together, um, knit together by pollinators, soil, precipitation, all of, all of those things, um, we feel ourselves a part of that, that we are knit into that beauty as well. And that's where the reciprocity comes, I think, you know, to say, 
in return for this stunning beauty of the world, um, what will I do to care for that beauty, to to bring my beauty into that um, circle of relationships as well? So I, I, I love your question. It's so perceptive that it is beauty that creates that doorway into reciprocal relationship, I think. You're listening to a conversation with Robin Wall Kimmerer, author of Braiding Sweetgrass. I'm Lauren Korn. This episode of The Right Question is supported by Fact and Fiction, an independent bookstore located in the heart of downtown Missoula, providing books for all ages and supporting the literary community in Montana and beyond. More information can be found at factandfictionbooks.com. Will you talk about memory, about the act of remembering, and what remembering has to do with reciprocity? Mm, I love that word, remembering. And in the response that I have gotten to braiding sweetgrass over these 10 years since it first came into the world, one of the things that I am hearing from readers um, and listeners is that the stories in Braiding Sweetgrass are provoking a longing to remember and remembering itself, remembering what it would be like to know the plants and animals around you as your pharmacy, as your providers, as your teachers. Um, so that remembering is, is tied up with a kind of um, recognition of forgetting that we used to know these things. We used to live in these reciprocal relationships with the living world that we might say we have forgotten, but in fact have been taken away from us. Um, so remembering conjures up that loss and the desire to learn again. Remembering to me is also really tied up with the recovery of ancestral knowledge, including things like our languages, our teaching stories, our um, science of land care and responsibility for, for more than human beings. So that remembering is also a, a cultural act of restoration of, 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 of safeguarding those things that were given to us and protecting them and, and breathing new life into them is a kind of important remembering. But all of that adds up to, to, to for me, another take on the word remembering to remember, to become a member again. And when we do remember the language and remember the teachings and remember the land care, what happens is we become a member again. We become a member of the of the of the family of all beings, uh, as opposed to this fictional pyramid of human exceptionalism that that human beings are outside the family of, of of life and that we are in charge of it and on top of it and all the rest of those beings are our property. Uh, uh, this kind of remembering an invitation to kinship is is a profound worldview shift, but it's not a new worldview. It is remembering the one that has guided 
human beings for most of our existence. I'm glad you mentioned that braiding sweetgrass turns 10 years old because it has it has been in the world for 10 years. Congratulations. And in that 10 years since it was first published, it has become a seminal text for environmentalists and philosophers, for artists, uh, for many, many people curious about their place in the world. And I'm wondering how braiding sweetgrass would be different were it written today. If you were to write it, today how would how would the book be different are there experiences that you've had in the last 10 years that would make it into the book um, or that the world has had the pandemic for instance um, that that really exemplify the reciprocity and the need for reciprocity that you point to over and over again yeah I think in the in in retrospect braiding sweetgrass was written in a time that um, seems somehow, more innocent, although it was only 10 years ago, when climate change was on the horizon, but not at our doorsteps. Um, I think that if I were to write Braiding Sweetgrass today, it would have a greater sense or a greater encounter with urgency and, and, and the way in which these stories are meant to propel action. It is a call to action, right? It is a call to decolonize our minds and to act as if we lived in a world full of gifts that need to be reciprocated. Um, but I think it would be probably a a more fierce and direct call to action than the the, the perhaps more gentle um, invitation to that 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 braiding sweetgrass is. When I say that, um, I also wonder whether if I was to undertake that exercise, I would edit myself back to invitation rather than exhortation, because I think it's invitation that 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 draws people in in their own way. Um, I was very careful in writing Breeding Sweetgrass not to, to the best of my ability, to... Um, in any way, tell people what they ought to do. It's more an invitation to say, look at this, just look at this, and and consider whether this might be a fit for the world that you want to live in. And I think that that invitation rather than exhortation is what has given it the wide readership, because people can then make it their own. Um, so while I say today I might be fiercer and more urgent, um, I might not too, because I think that it works. I think that that approach to say, let's imagine together what would happen if we constructed for ourselves a world of reciprocity. Yeah, I think a lot of its power is in its not subtlety, but its quietness, some of its silences. I'm curious about what you've learned in the past 10 years, Robin, further about reciprocity, um, about people, our desire and our survival, about our own changing perspectives on the more than human world. Mm. I think that I have perhaps an expanded vocabulary for how reciprocity can be expressed. 
through my lived experience as, as a person living on the land where I can directly reciprocate to the land uh, because I can be a, a direct steward of the land, um, a direct carer for the land is really the better language there. Um, but I recognize that I have a tremendous blind spot in how we reciprocate the gifts of the land when we live in urban settings, which so much of humanity does. And there's good good reasons for that, right? In terms of sustainability, broadly speaking, urban centers have a lot to offer in terms of, of reduced carbon footprint, etc. So um, I think some of the insights that I am being that are being shared with me are about how we enact reciprocity um, in indirect ways through political action, through discourse, through the making of transformative art and music, that these are powerful tools of of reciprocity that don't involve hands in the dirt, but that change our story and change our awareness of our intimate relationship with with the living world and so all those other kinds of 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 reciprocity that that are enabled by dynamic multicultural urban communities are really fascinating to me and um i'm i'm eager to see what other writers and thinkers, how they manifest that in in similar invitations in in urban environments, that is beyond my ability. But I so think it needs to be done. I have just one more question about change, and and that is, how has the pond that you write so lovingly about in braiding sweetgrass changed in the last ten years? <laughs> Thank you for asking that. Um, you know that work of raking the pond and encouraging nutrient uptake by all the shoreline um, it really improved the water quality. Um, it, it it became you know a sparkling pond. Um, I was also um, been very mindful about um, bringing other plants to that landscape. So there are now wild irises and marsh marigolds and and many who hadn't been able to get there um, have been invited into place and and are flourishing but i will also say um that in the last oh maybe three years as i have been increasingly on the road and not at my pond I went up there this summer and thought, what is going on here? What is all this algae? <laughs> and and uh, so actually, uh, my my little grandson was up there with me um, with our rakes, um, trying to pull out some of those, those, those algae. And of course, I was showing him all the little green filaments and so forth. But the work continues. It's, 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 it's never done. Um, we, we, um, in order to uh, sort of slow the, the natural progression of, of of sedimentation and 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 so forth um we need to have our hands in it as well so it is now an intergenerational project i love that 
Braiding Sweetgrass is not your only book. Uh, you also wrote a book called Gathering Moss. And I'm wondering, especially in light of, uh, as you talk about this urgency of climate change, I'm wondering what moss can teach us about survival and longevity. Mm. Mosses, as the most ancient plants on the planet, have seen every single climate change that has occurred on this planet since plants first came onto land. And, you know, 99% of, of all the beings who have ever existed are extinct, but not mosses. Um, they got something right that has allowed them to endure through all of these changes. So I think a lot about what are they teaching us about that? What is it that gave them this great longevity on the planet? And, you know, one of them, I think, is, is this idea that in order to be successful, in order to be influential, um, you don't have to be big. Mosses are such tiny, tiny little beings, and yet they thrive, they make beauty, um, they are present in every single um, ecosystem on the planet, save marine ecosystems. That is a heck of a definition of success, right? And to last for 400 million years or more, um, I think we could learn from them how to flourish in smallness, um, not by extracting from our environment, but be like mosses, take very little and give back a lot. They are masters of, of, of lived reciprocity. And, you know, when we say, oh, well, they're, you know, they're, they're small, they're, they're marginal, but they're incredibly beautiful and they harbor so much life there's there's nothing minimal about them I, I they're they're exquisite and powerful in their own way but so they give us another model of what it means to um to be powerful um as inhabitants of the land Robin, I'm wondering if there's anything more you want listeners to know about braiding sweetgrass or about the talk you're giving for the President's Lecture Series. Um, I want to give you that space now. Yeah, I think that one of the important themes in braiding sweetgrass that um, deserves more attention is the importance of indigenous science and traditional ecological knowledge with its coupling to these values of respect and reciprocity and kinship that we need for the road ahead. In the 10 years since Braiding Sweetgrass was published, there have been so much dynamism, so much energy behind Indigenous-led conservation, Indigenous-led sustainability efforts, where the understanding of the natural world is coupled to values that are held in Indigenous worldview. We now have a White House policy, right, that elevates traditional ecological knowledge in all federal land decision-making. Um, there is a crescendo in the influence of indigenous science and, and, and thought. And um, I couldn't be more grateful for that and excited to see where it will lead us. 
I am so grateful, Robin, that we had this chance to talk. I'm so grateful, and many of the readers I know are so grateful for braiding sweetgrass. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lauren. This was really fun. Thanks for the thought that you put into our conversation. I appreciate it. That was Robin Wall Kimmerer, author of Braiding Sweetgrass, out now from Milkweed Editions. Robin will be in Missoula, Montana on October 10th for the President's Lecture Series, taking place in the University Ballroom on the University of Montana campus at 7 p.m. and over Zoom. Look for more information about Robin at mtpr.org, where you can also subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You've been listening to The Right Question. This episode was produced by Jake Birch and me. I'm your host, Lauren Korn. Aiden McMahon engineered this episode. The artwork for The Right Question was designed by Molly Russell, and our music was written and recorded by John Floridas. Funding for The Right Question is provided by the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. Many thanks to Humanities Montana for supporting this program since 2008, and thank you for listening. The Right Question is a production of Montana Public Radio.